Thank you, team. Good morning, church. I was reminded as we were singing that while we wait, we can wait with joy. With joy. We don't have to be anxious. We can live with great joy and rejoice together as a community of faith, as believers who are united in our love for one another and our love for the Lord. Welcome to CNBC, everybody. Those of you who are in the building, we're glad you're here with us today. And those of you that are participating with us online, it is a joy to have you here uh, worshiping the Lord with us today. Our monthly memory verse for the month of November. Very appropriate, uh, perhaps for many of us uh, this time of year, maybe for every single day of the year. Let's say it together. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Philippians 4, 6. Very good. Well, this morning we are talking about rejoicing, joy, and standing firm in the Lord. As we continue our study and our reflections through Paul's letter to the people of God that were gathered in the city of Philippi. Now, when I was very young, I can remember faintly, uh, at least what my mind recalls, one of my first trips to the beach. Some of you can remember the ocean or the beach. Some of you are beach people and ocean people, and some of you are mountain people. Some of you would rather go to the woods than go to the ocean. And the thought occurred to me this week that when I was at the beach, one of my favorite things to do was to go stand in the water right about where it was at my waist. And I would anchor my feet into the sand and I would try to stand against the waves and the tide and not let them knock me over. Any of you remember doing this as kids? And sometimes I'd like beat the waves as they'd come towards me and I didn't want to be moved or knocked over. And so I'd really set my feet firmly in the sand. You know, I went to college then a number of years later and where I ended up going to school was way up in the northern part of Pennsylvania in a little town called Clark Summit. And on our college campus, there was a pond. And usually around this time of year, maybe a week from now, um, definitely by Thanksgiving, the pond would freeze and it would be really cold up there and you could go out onto the pond. And I recognize that standing firm on a frozen pond feels a lot different and looks a lot different than standing firm in sand in the ocean. Because see, on, on a frozen pond, on ice, if I try to stand firm in the same way that I tried to stand firm in the sand, it wouldn't work. It didn't work. I'm not even sure if you can stand firm on ice. Maybe some of you know a trick. I don't know. I know some people put those spiky things on the bottom of their shoes. Maybe that would help. But it's interesting, on the surfaces that we're standing on, there is a different approach or a different way of standing firm. And one of the questions we want to engage with today as we look at Paul's text is, what does it mean to stand firm in the Lord today? How does that look for a group of believers? How does that look for an individual? 
What are some patterns? What are some takeaways? What are some ways of living and thinking that we can practice that would be in line with Paul's understanding of what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord? So we're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 4. We have one more message after this week in our series through Philippians. Today we're in Philippians chapter 4 verses 1 through 9. You can turn there a while. And before we read, let's ask the Lord to guide our time of study together this morning. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you moved in a mighty and supernatural way in Paul's life, that your spirit came upon him and carried him along as he wrote these words. Lord, we're thankful that what he wrote for us is useful today. And we believe that as we gather around your word this morning, that your spirit is at work even now, moving and motivating us to listen, to have our hearts and minds ready to put into practice exactly what each and every one of us need according to where we're at right now. And so, Lord, we come to your word today looking at the patterns that Paul believed were helpful for the church and for individuals who made up the church to live standing firm for the Lord in the places that you've planted us. We want to be salt. We want to be light for you, effective ministers of the gospel. So help us, Lord, as we gather around your text this morning to learn how we might do that. And we want to give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. These are Paul's words to the people of God in Philippi. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia. And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. As we enter the fourth chapter of Philippians, we want to take a moment to review where we have been as we lead up to this part of Paul's letter. Throughout his letter to the people of God in Philippi, Paul has chosen to use terms that were closely associated with military language or terminology. We've seen words like contend, courage, sacrifice, 
fearless, rivalry. He's used words such as intimidation, conflict, and now this concept that he even used in chapter 1 of standing firm were just some among many others. These were a set of terms that would have been highly familiar to many of the people who made up the blossoming church that was in Philippi. And yet, as Paul used this terminology, he would often define these words in ways that looked and sounded very differently than what would have been anticipated by his audience. For a retired Roman soldier who had once served the Caesar of Rome faithfully on a battlefield, to hear the words stand firm, as Paul communicates it at the beginning of his letter, would have meant something entirely different than how Paul goes on to describe it. It's like standing firm in the sand versus standing firm on a sheet of ice. The soldier would have thought of holding a strategic position while being under attack. And as such, he would have anticipated using power, force, or some other form of military tactics. He would have anticipated hearing that conduct worthy of the gospel that includes standing firm and contending would include some measure of violence or force. This, however, would not be the image that Paul would direct the imagination of his listeners towards. For the followers of Jesus gathering as the early church, there was a better way to stand firm. One that stood out, that caused the community to, stay, to shine bright and to have effect for the glory of God and the name of Jesus. That way, Paul describes in chapter 2, was the way of Jesus. Jesus' own example of humility is demonstrated through the willful laying aside of his rights and the sacrifice of his own life was a far better example, one that stood counterculturally to the more culturally defined interpretation of what it looked like to stand firm. And as such, it is the example or portrait of Christ that is the standard that the Christian community gathers and forms around. And with this new concept or standard, Paul was quick to give a fresh illustration of what it looks like to live as broken and poured out in community with one another. He does this by giving us the testimony of two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. It was their lives that were examples of those who were worthy of the gospel, who were standing firm and contending for the faith. But Paul recognized that there were also existing within the church a myriad of examples that were unworthy. Examples that saw standing firm through the lens of self-righteousness or self-centered living. And he lays out these examples in chapter 3. He gives them titles or characteristics where he concludes again that embracing Christ's example as imitated by Paul was the best way for the church to continue to form and develop even in the face of opposition and oppression from individuals and or the Roman government. And towards the end of chapter 3, Paul directs our minds towards the soon coming return of King Jesus. What a hopeful thing. 
And he reminds us that those who are faithful and endure or persevere to the end will rejoice together at his coming. And so it should serve as little surprise to us that at the beginning of chapter four, Paul comes back to this same phrase, no longer standing firm for the cause of Caesar and following the ways of his empire. Rather, instead, the Christian community is to stand firm in the Lord who has clearly been identified as Jesus. It is here where we begin to explore our text today. Verse one. So then, my brothers and sisters, dear friends who I long to see my joy and crown stand firm in the Lord in this way, my dear friends. If you wonder uh, in some text why we include the word sisters after brothers, it is because it's exactly what Paul intended. He's using the word adelphoi in the Greek, which is translated brethren. In other words, if I were to get up here today on stage and I were to say to you, hey, guys, what everyone anticipates in this room is that I'm speaking to only the men. No. But to the men and the women, whether you're online or here or here in the building. Likewise, in the New Testament, the vast majority of the time that Paul uses this word, he is addressing the entire faith community, men and women. So we can and should sometimes remind ourselves by very literally saying brothers and sisters. This is a significant reality of the new community. And I think we lose sight of this sometimes today as a church because we're so separated from that community and the text as it was received in that community. But this was an entirely new dynamic. The the early church was now a place where women and men, slaves and free, single and married, poor and wealthy, Jew and Gentile could all come together to worship the one true living God. Isn't that beautiful? That was not a reality before the church. Now, because of Christ, it could be. And that's a powerful new dynamic. Jesus Christ, the person, had united people from every background He was the source from which all could come and draw life upon life. And in him, there is neither male or female, Jew or Greek, slave nor free. I imagine Paul from his house prison having the warmest of feelings as he thinks of his joy and his crown. That's how he describes the church. He is so proud of how they're enduring. He is so proud of how they're standing. My joy, my crown. And now we know the situation. Hope seems to be fading. Paul is prison. Epaphroditus, the Philippians' own journeyman, is ill, gravely ill. Timothy is absent. He's not present. The Roman government is actively persecuting the church. The Judaizers who are present are disparaging unity. And there are others who are self-centered that are encouraging a standard that was other than Christ. But Paul, once again, in his closing thoughts, is encouraging his dear friends to do what? Stand firm 
in the Lord. Stand firm. And today we might rightly and curiously then ask the fair question that we're going to explore and unpack as we go through the rest of the text. What does it look like for a Christian community and or individual to stand firm in the Lord? It's a question which Paul is going to give insight to as we continue down through the chapter today. And we're going to look at seven patterns for a community or an individual who is standing firm in the Lord. Paul begins with relational harmony. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. He says this, I appeal to Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I say also to you, true companion, help them. They've struggled together in the gospel ministry along with me and Clement and my other co-workers whose names are in the book of life. The first pattern of a Christian community or individual standing firm in the Lord is the existence of harmony within our relationships. Paul's appealing to two of his gospel partners here. Their names are Yodia and Syntyche. We don't have any girls named Syntyche anymore. Maybe our ladies should be happy about that. <laughs> and we don't know the exact nature of their disagreement. But what we can pull from the text is that this disagreement in some way had disrupted their relationship. And perhaps relationships within the church, as we know that oftentimes when there's disagreement with people, folks choose sides and form allegiances. So Paul's calling upon the church to help these women. He's identifying them both as co-laborers. He says they're struggling together with him in the gospel ministry. This phrase in its literal sense suggests that these women were full participants in the work of making the good news of Jesus known to others. Paul equates them with his other male co-laborers and counterparts. He does not suggest that they were less than, rather he does quite the opposite, putting them on equal footing with Clement and the others who had served with him. The relational division of Yodia and Syntyche disrupted Paul enough and the community enough for him to identify them and call them out by name. Isn't that interesting? But within his words, he leaves clues. Clues that would help to remedy their disagreement. Clues that we can grab hold of for the remedy in our disagreements that come up in church today. We see one of these clues at the end of the verse where Paul reminds them of their common identity as those whose names are in the book of life. Now, friends, it's important to remember this letter would have been read publicly in front of the entire Christian community gathered in Philippi. It would have been rehearsed many times, unpacked for its meaning, and forever emblazoned, even till, still, to, still to today, would be the names of these two women. Could you imagine if Yodia and Syntyche were here right now? What their response might be, oh, we need to just give this up. <laughs> I mean, imagine the challenge. Paul wanted them to know that he valued them both. 
that they were both considered as co-laborers, that they were both committed to the ministry of the gospel and that they both had their names written in the book of life, both of them. And with all of that in view, what could possibly be so important that would divide them? One was a Republican, one was a Democrat. No, I'm just kidding. Come on. We can laugh at that. We can laugh at that. And all of this, and yet still today, we have divisions of relationships within the church. I've said this often, but I think it's worth repeating over and over again when we come upon texts like these. For those of us who share Christ, we will always have far more in common than we do different. And when we embrace and recognize the sufficiency of Jesus in holding us together as individuals and communities, nothing should stand to separate those who are in Christ Jesus. He is sufficient enough to hold together his church. Amen? Amen. For Yodia and Syntyche, a restoration of relational harmony would not only be evidence of their standing firm in the Lord, but it would also prompt joy within the Christian community when others see that a relationship has been restored and repaired. I mean, we've seen this before in the church when there's broken relationship and there's division, yet folks get involved to work towards relational harmony so that there can be unity again. Often that's followed by joy. We're happy that people are no longer bickering anymore or fighting. That's what Paul would desire to see for his community. Our joy is never to be found in that which divides or separates us. Our joy is in the Lord. And when the church is united in its source of joy, it's practicing another pattern of standing firm in the Lord. Now, joy has remained the tune that Paul has carried throughout his letter. Look at verse four. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And it's remarkable that Paul keeps coming back to this key quality of Christian community. True partnership requires that believers stand together joyfully through both good times and difficult times. It was a difficult time for the Philippian church. Some may say it's a difficult time for the church today. And joy in difficult circumstances is a countercultural attribute that presents a powerful image of Christ to a not yet believing world from inside of our faith communities joy promotes steadfastness and it keeps our hearts and minds focused on a bigger and more complete picture it encourages an eternal perspective and that doesn't mean that we don't point out or name painful hard or difficult events in our lives we don't hide a, hide under a rock or cover up and pretend like hard things don't happen it simply means that somewhere in the timeline of those events, we realize a hope that reaches beyond the pain. 
Now, friends, it's also important that we recognize, and I've heard this before, and I just don't believe it, that joy doesn't mean that we're always giggly and silly and happy and smiley. I mean, those can come. Those things can certainly come in moments of joy. Those can be part of it, but it's not all the time in our Christian life. And we shouldn't assume that someone who's walking through a hard and difficult, painful time should be presenting themselves in a way that expresses any differently than the grief and the mourning and the pain that they're experiencing in their life. Doesn't mean that at all. To rejoice is to persevere through what comes in life. Looking beyond the fogginess of heartache. In gentle and quiet moments when there's loss and there's hurt and there's brokenness. To see beyond, to hope beyond with a steadfast spirit that embraces and perhaps even anticipates future hope and restoration. Sometimes, friends, our joy, the way that we can best express joy within Christian community is to just be present with someone. And sometimes we see these words rejoice and You know, a lot of times there's exclamation marks and we think, well, if I'm going to rejoice and and I'm going to be a presence of joy in someone's life that's hurting, then I got to show up and really be happy. (sighs) Like we're at a party and and this person's grieving. And, And that's not what joy requires or demands. Sometimes just being present, not needing to give words or antidotes or looking for answers or meaning in hurt and heartache, but just presence, letting people know I'm here for you. I see that you're hurting. I understand. I'm going to pray for you. And I want to be present to walk along with you. I want to help you bear this burden that you're carrying right now. That can be joy. That can be joy. And that can be an incredibly joyful thing for someone who's walking through a really hard and difficult time. To have solidarity with somebody else who's willing to be present with them and walk with them in that season. And immediately after Paul encourages the community of faith to rejoice, he moves towards this appropriate posture of rejoicing. And the posture and practice of gentleness is the third pattern for standing firm in the Lord. Look at verse 5. Let everyone see your gentleness. The Lord is near. Now, some translations, including the ESV, use the word reasonableness. Uh, The word in Greek actually implies a gentle spirit. It's used in multiple places in the New Testament to even describe the qualifications of those who serve as leaders within the Christian community. Here, Paul uses it with the entire church in view. We are all together, and as one body, we are to exude the quality of gentleness. Notice Paul says that everyone within and outside of the Christian community is to see our gentleness. That means that there is an aspect of our gentleness that is visible, that is tangible, 
that is able to be seen and experienced by others. It's not some fleeting quality that can't be seen. And we talk about gentleness. I don't know if we talk about it enough today in the church. And the reason Paul gives for individuals and Christian communities to express their gentleness is that the Lord is nearby. He is watching. He cares. And it's very interesting when Jesus has an opportunity to define his own character and his own spirit in the Gospel of Matthew. We might remember that he says, I am gentle and lowly. Words that Jesus himself uses to define his own character. Gentleness requires intentionality. Man, I'm not good at being gentle. My wife joked with me yesterday and she, she hit the nail on the head. In our home, we break things to fix them. And while we fix them, we break them again. And it's just a terrible cycle. That just continues. And you know, it, it's just, the, I'm not very good at fixing things. I'm not. And the harder, guess the harder I try to fix things, guess what? The more they break, the worse it gets. And boy, it just ends up being a mess. I am far better off just paying the money, calling somebody else to come because what would uh, end up being a week-long project for me because I'll have seven rabbit trails because I'll break seven things in the way to trying to fix it would be just a few hours of a project for someone who's actually a professional and knows how to fix it. I am not great with being gentle. That's with my hands, but physically in relationship with one another. I'm not sure if we're great at this quality that Paul's communicating. That's not just to be present in the community, but the individuals who make it up. Are we careful? Are we gentle? With the hearts and the minds of the soul and the souls of those that God has called us to love and serve. Are we gentle and careful with the hearts and minds of souls of the people that we're placed in community with? We don't live where we live by accident. Our neighbors aren't our neighbors by some happenstance. God has great purpose for where he plants us and where he puts us. Are we gentle in those spaces? Careful with our words and our actions, the way we speak towards others or about others. Are we mindful of the way in which the presentation of our opinions and our thoughts and, I, and ideas, even theological perspectives, might be heard and understood and received by others, both those who believe and those who have not yet believed? Gentleness. Gentleness may mean that we're patient and wait before speaking or sharing with someone who thinks or lives differently than we do. Sometimes you get in a conversation or I get, this is me, I get in a conversation with somebody and they're saying something that I really, really disagree with. And all I want to do is just get my point in there. Just can't wait for them to take a breath. Please take a breath. I need to get my inroad, my on-ramp, get my point across. It's not always gentle. Well, it's rarely gentle. It may never be gentle. May not ever be. Man, it's an area I've had to grow in and I need to continue to grow in. Man, I need the Lord's help in that area. Gentleness may mean that sometimes 
we don't even say anything at all, even if we vehemently disagree. I have some mentors in my life that are really good at doing this. And I know that that means that they don't agree with me. (laughs) But I'm thankful that they do this. (laughs) Gentleness may mean that sometimes in love, we overlook an offense and choose to say nothing at all. Gentleness may also mean that when we come to relationships and we come to people in our lives who look and maybe live very differently than we do, instead of beginning with all the things that we don't have in common, we begin with our inherent dignity as common people who are created in the image of God. And as such, both have great value and worth because he's created us. There is a kindred relationship between these qualities of humility, kindness, and gentleness. And I got to share with the group uh, just this last week, and one of the things I've shared with them, one of the ways the Lord's been challenging my heart and teaching me recently, and and I feel like he's always working on me in some way, but most recently, the, the word that has been coming up in my mind over and over again is be a presence of peace. Because I don't know about you, but I'm looking around at the world that I'm living in and I'm seeing a lot that's not peace. And I'm just thinking that one way that I can shine for Christ in the places where the Lord has planted me is everywhere I go. And and this requires intentionality because I have to be thinking on a car ride. I have to be thinking before a meeting. I have to be thinking before getting to football practice. I have to be thinking before the game last night. How can I be a presence of peace right here where I am at? And how is the Lord going to use that May, how might he be able to use that to make himself known to someone that he's put in my life? A presence of peace. Followers of Jesus, we are to look and sound different in the world that we live in. There is sin in the world that drags the world down and leads to a tearing apart of one another. It happens in churches. It happens outside of churches. And the faith community is to avoid, subvert, and replace those patterns that are of sin and death with patterns of relational harmony, joy, gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit, really, we could go to Galatians, spend some time there. The reality is that there are many in our world that are fettered or chained by doubt, by fear, by worry, anxiety. Even some to the point of immobilization. And as Christians endeavoring to stand firm in the Lord, Paul is encouraging a freedom from those things. A freedom that follows these patterns for standing firm. Look at the beginning of verse 6. What does he say? Do not be anxious about anything. <laughs> Oh, what an appropriate week for us to talk about this. (laughs) You guys are awesome. I just want to say that right now. There are many within our community over the course of the last week that have been vulnerable enough with me 
to express the anxiety they had over the outcome and or results of the elections that we held this week. And that's one area. Politics is one area where maybe we experience anxiety in our lives. But if we're honest, that is not the only source of anxiety. It may be the one that's most near to us this week, but many of us, many of us in a week or so, are going to have problems that far outweigh the anxiety that we experience perhaps this week at some point. There's situations at our job. There's realities going on in our children's lives. Some of us are concerned about our physical health. We might look at things like the economy, whether there's enough milk for the cereal in the morning. Maybe some of you wonder, did I lock the doors? Did I turn off the oven? I can't remember, and it just consumes you. What is it? Paul suggests that we are not to be anxious about anything, and he doesn't supply a back door for us to excuse our anxiety over one issue or another. Yeah, but Paul really couldn't have meant that I can't be anxious about this over here. That's not there. There is a period, there is a hard stop. Do not be anxious about anything. Anything. And if it seems like an impossible measure, I am so glad that Paul offers an antidote for our anxiety. One that again pushes us beyond our circumstances and back to the steadfast reliance on God. So rather than being anxious in this world, Paul suggests a better way that the Christian community can demonstrate standing firm in the Lord. It's in verses 6b and 7. We'll read 6b first. Instead, so instead of being anxious, instead in every situation... Every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God. Paul's antidote for anxiety is offered in verse 6, and it's as powerful as it is compelling. For both the individual and the Christian community, there's a call to prayer, petition, and thanksgiving. A telling of our requests to God. And when we come to God through the habit of prayer with gratitude, we are demonstrating our reliance on him. And friends, I love that at CNBC, this is one of our major trellis priorities, prayer. And, and I'm so thankful that, that we have elders and leaders in our church who are embodying and practicing this priority and communicating this priority regular. They desire and I desire that we are forming as a praying congregation, a praying community. This is important, vitally important. And there's all kinds of ways that we do this at CNBC. Some of you pick up the intercessor each week and you faithfully pray at home. Uh, if you're not sure what that is, that's our weekly prayer bulletin. It's in the foyer right as you walk in. There's all kinds of prayer concerns on there. Some of you take the monthly prayer calendar, which is also out here in the foyer, and you hang that up on the fridge. And each day of the month, you faithfully pray through the prayer calendar. Some of you uh, take the birthday list. I've heard this from some of you. And you put the birthday list in your Bible. And when you do your devotions, you look at who has birthdays and you pray for those who have birthdays. 
Some of you come to prayer meeting on Wednesday evenings faithfully and are praying there. Some of you come to the men's prayer meeting on Saturday morning and are faithfully praying there. Some of you are volunteering and leading in different ministries in the church. And within your ministries, you are praying with our children. You are praying with our students. Our global ministries team got together on Thursday night and we spent the first half hour of our meeting praying for our global partners. Friends, prayer has to be a vital, vital component of any healthy faith community. Amen? This demonstrates our reliance on God. And if you're looking for more opportunities to pray or you want to take more uh, advantage of the opportunities that already exist within our community to pray, I'd encourage you to seek the Lord and how you might do that. Maybe it would be attending Wednesday night. You don't have to come to the building. You can come on Zoom now. It's a wonderful thing. We have a great group that joins on Zoom. Sometimes we even have global partners from all over the world with us on Zoom on Wednesday evening. You can come to the building as well. Maybe uh, you could, Maybe if, if you're a man, you're like, man, I just need to, have, I need to have some more time with other men that are just a little bit out in front of me. I just need to get together and and be vulnerable and be willing to open up with and maybe just pray with another group of guys that can help guide me along in this season of my life. I can tell you, Saturday mornings, there is a group of men here that will faithfully pray with you, but they will also encourage you and uplift your heart and spirit if that is what you need. Please, please, friends, prioritize prayer in this community. God uses prayer in mighty ways. Paul's using big words here in these verses. I mean, they're the words that when you go, if you ever have have gone to some form of counseling or anything like that, maybe with your spouse or maybe somebody else, maybe you've done mediation, they're words that we're never supposed to use, right? Everything, everyone. Let me look. He has verse four, rejoice always. Verse five, let everyone see your gentleness. Verse six, do not be anxious about anything. And now again, in every situation through prayer, always, everyone, anything, every. Isn't it amazing? As he motivates the Christian community and its people towards radical, even extreme dependence on God, he leaves us with a promise. When we are dependent on on God in this way, when we are relying on him and his strength and his presence and not our own, there's a promise for us in the text. And it's a wonderful, hopeful promise. Look at verse seven. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Church, when we are living and expressing our dependence on God through the patterns of prayer, not only do we experience far less anxiety, but also God's peace is guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this moves us away from both an unhealthy reliance on self and an unhealthy reliance on others. And when the going gets tough in either our personal or corporate lives, we tend to fall back on our own efforts. Paul's pushing us towards a very different pattern of living and thinking in this world. It's interesting. When the going gets tough, the popular thinking in this world is to take care of it ourselves first. I can handle it. I can do it. I can fix it. I know I can't. 
Relational harmony, that goes out the back door. Others-mindedness, the thought of laying down our lives for each other, it often gets abandoned. We get consumed with this thing that needs to be fixed. Joy then becomes rather circumstantial. If the situation goes our way and we fix it, or things turn out the way we want, we have joy and contentment for a season. If not, we get angry, maybe scared, we want to get even, maybe just grumpy. Then gentleness gives way to aggression, violence, and taking of what in our minds might rightfully belong to us. It's interesting to see how anxiety works. We get anxious if we lose But we also get anxious if we win as we now find that we must defend what we've won. Our reliance turns to self and the cycle starts all over again. And friends, Paul is calling us to a better way of living. An entirely different way of thinking and being in this world. A better way. And once again, we're confronted with a standard that's firmly rooted and grounded in the image of Jesus, who is clearly at the center of Paul's entire thinking throughout this letter. Look at verse 8 for the next pattern. This is pattern number 6. Christian communities that stand firm will have a higher way of thinking. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And friends, I know that you know this, that there are so many untrue, disrespectful, unjust, impure, gross, and reprehensible things in our world. Things that are neither excellent nor praiseworthy. And yet, these are the very things that so often take up real estate in our minds. And the stuff we think about matters. It matters. But I love how in his letter, Paul has prioritized in the way he's ordered it, who we think about first. Whatever is true, Jesus says, I am the way, the Truth and the life. Whatever is worthy of respect. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He came to seek and save. He was a man who in every way was worthy of respect. Whatever is just. Jesus is both perfectly just and justifier. Whatever is pure. Jesus is the unblemished, spotless pure, holy lamb, whatever is lovely, Jesus is personified and perfected love. Whatever is commendable, Jesus laid down his own life to pay for our sins, taking the death we deserved. Whatever is excellent, no one else in history lived with greater excellence and perfection than Jesus. He is the standard of excellence. Whatever is praiseworthy, he is the one who's worthy of all praise. The one who we were told one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Church, when our minds are tuned to the station of Jesus Christ, we will find ourselves living free from the static of this world. 
That's a reality that's been true of my life. I know it will be true of yours as well. When we set our minds on the things above, when we set our minds on Christ Jesus, his ways, his attitudes, his words, not on the things of this earth, our lives will be much more whole and fulfilling. Paul is calling the Christian community and the individuals who make it up, not just to a different standard of life, but also to a different standard for thinking. And I know this week something's going to throw us off. I don't know what it is. You might not know what it is sitting here now. Maybe some of you do. You see that thing coming. It's like a tidal wave. You know it's coming at work, that hard meeting, that difficult meeting, that time you're going to have with a family member who you really don't like but have to pretend for for a few minutes too. Whatever it might be, that really hard and difficult thing is coming. It's coming. And when it comes, remember Christ. Remember Jesus in that moment and think about his words and his attitudes and his ways and let your thoughts go up there rather than on all the other things and all the other places that they could. I have to practice this all the time. Oh man, I want to complain sometimes and grumble. I like grumbling. We're not supposed to do it. I have to confess and repent frequently. I need the Lord's help. It's hard. It's not easy to live this way. Paul never suggests that it is. He never says, oh, by the way, welcome to a relationship with Jesus. Your life will now be free from pain. <laughs> it's not how it works. It's not how it goes. There's going to be disappointment, disagreement, heartache, devastation, loss. What Paul has been encouraging us to do over and over and over again in this letter is to cling to Christ. Cling to him. Hold on to him like your life literally depended on it. Because it does. It does. And finally, Paul says standing firm in this world might look like living Faithfully. Faithful living is the final pattern for standing firm in the Lord. Look at verse 9. And what you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, do these things. And the God of peace, there it is again, the God of peace will be with you. Paul suggests four ways here in this verse which he motivated the Philippian Christians to follow Christ. He taught, they learned. He gave, they received. He spoke, they heard, and he acted in accordance with all of those things, and they took notice. They took notice. And friends, Paul says, imitate me. Imitate me. Because he was faithfully imitating Christ. If we want to encourage others to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, then perhaps we'll follow some of these same patterns. Teaching, giving, speaking, 
and acting in accordance with what we say we believe and trusting that if we do that, as we do that, God will be working so that those who he places in our life with a purpose will take notice because we'll look different. Things aren't going to throw us off like they throw other people off. Things aren't going to take us to dark, deep, hard places like they do others who have no hope. When we're really happy, really excited, really engaged, we're not going to lose hold of Christ and become arrogant and prideful, but we're going to have a humility that's uncommon in this world, giving credit to others who are a part of that success and not elevating ourselves, elevating Christ instead. This is a hopeful way of living. It's a wonderful way of living. It's a powerful way of living. Friends, these are the patterns of standing firm in this world. And they look very different than perhaps the way some might define standing firm today. As our team comes, let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Your word has an incredibly refreshing way of just changing our perspective. I'm thankful for it. I'm refreshed by it, Lord. As we come to your text, you show us things that uh, perhaps cause us to just think differently. And you use your word to form us into the image of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we want to look more and more like Jesus every day in our lives. Uh, we, we want to live like him. We want to think like him. We want to move and act like he did in this world. We acknowledge today that that can be hard, that, that a lot of times circumstances and situations in our life can become very heavy and unbearable and we slip and we stumble and, and we want to be quick to confess those times to you and just repent from them and turn from that. Just acknowledge our need for you to be with us in every minute of our day. Just walking with you, reflecting on you, thinking about you through each leg of the journey that you have us on, constantly being aware that you are with us, that you never leave us or forsake us, that you love us, that we matter to you, and that you care about the way we live in this world and represent your son. Father, as we go this week, we want to do that well, so help us. Help us glorify you by representing Jesus in a way that would honor you where you've placed us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.